Under us, Australia is withstanding some of those international pressures. Below the line, Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Australians must now be concerned that our politicians are acting in the interest of the Chinese Communist government. You've seen those big yellow billboards. Well, if you think Clive Palmer wants to help you, think again. Welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special. From polls to party spin to policies, Below the Line is a limited edition podcast breaking free of party, media and populist lines. It's brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation website. I'm John Fain from the University of Melbourne, and I'm joined by political scientists, professors Annika Geyer and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, respectively the professors of parties and polls, and professor of press Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. We try to cut through the election noise with episodes, well, we're trying to do two a week during this election campaign. Now, most weeks... We've tried to bring you an entree, a main course and a dessert, but today I think it's more tapas and shared plates. So let's start with the big bombshell of interest rates that came just late last week and whether or not that is still going to be an issue on Monday when pre-poll voting starts, let alone in two weeks when people queue up for their democracy sausage. First of all, Annika, take us through. Do you think it's still an issue on Monday and in two weeks from there? Well, I think it is a pretty big issue. Um, as we saw in 2007, it was something that really got John Howard unstuck in the election campaign. I mean, interest rates themselves are a pretty abstract concept, and we've seen a lot of the debate um, circle around notions of responsa- responsibility and what the, the federal government can and can't do versus the Reserve Bank in that scenario. But I think the issue has longevity insofar as it links to cost of living. And as soon as um, issues like the economy, like interest rates, link into people's hip pockets, they have the ability to kick around for some time. And it's also an issue that you can link to this idea of economic management more broadly, which both major parties want to keep that on the agenda as the central item because it's what distinguishes them from the minor parties. But interest rates are two-edged sword too, aren't they, Simon? There are just as many electorates where self-funded retirees and part pensioners and people with money in the bank want interest rates to go up as there are sensitive electorates with young families worried about interest rates, being anxious about interest rates going up. So it, it sort of cuts both ways in different, in different electorates, does it not? Yeah, it does. But I don't think it's 50-50, John. Uh, I think the the political impact, particularly when you map it by volume and then onto um, where people live, I think the the it's more down um, than an up, if you will, uh, politically for the incumbent government. Um, those who rely on investment income, um, and those and among those people, uh, votes that are up for grabs, I'd suggest to you as a much smaller set and perhaps more geographically concentrated than the set of people exposed to increasing uh, home mortgage rates and where they live, both in terms of their numbers and where they live, I suggest to you that it's uh, that's the more politically salient uh, aspect of this. More marginal seats where people want interest rates low than at safe seats where people would like interest rates to go up. Is that pretty much a simplification of it? Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think the sort of people 
for whom getting <laughs> a cash deposit now is earning, you know, next to nothing to a little more than next to nothing versus the stressed two income household that are getting back up on their feet after COVID and kind of knew this day was coming, but here it finally is uh, with the promise of more to follow, perhaps with two, two kids to have to get through school as well. The impact on household finances is, I think, uh, John, much more salient um, and much more politically relevant among those mortgage holders than investment earners. Okay, but Casso, from the point of view of the media, why is the debate so lopsided or one-sided? It's as if that other group, the people who want interest rates to go up, including a lot of businesses that would prefer to have some interest rate kind of heft in, in the equation, but barely gets mentioned. Well, that's true, and it's probably because it's not that sexy talking about older people making a bit more money out of their fixed-term accounts than it is to talk about the mortgage beltway. The mortgages are not going away anytime soon, and the banks have already started passing on the interest rate rise, so it becomes not just an intangible issue, but a very tangible issue for people. And the other side to this is the ALP launch last weekend couldn't be more timely by putting cost of living front and centre, and this um, uh, aphorism that they're using of leaving no one behind, it speaks very well to this interest rate rise and the panic that's going on with those mortgage holders. Well, it's uh, going to be interesting to see, and we'll come back to this, whether it's an issue still, or well, pre-polling starts Monday, we'll come back to that in a minute, whether it's still an issue in two weeks, there's so much water still to flow under the bridge. Now, it's an odd truism in not just politics, but crime and all sorts of other fields where if you want to know what's really going on, you follow the money. So take us through the figures, Carso. Who's spending what on, insofar as we can tell, mainstream media, billboards, leaflets, ads on radio and television, but in particular, social media? Well, I love your optimism, John, that there's a degree of opacity here. We don't get to see all those figures the way that we would like, particularly as political scientists. We've never had a true figure on what the overall mainstream media spend is or what billboards is. That's something the ad companies might know, but it's not available to us publicly. What we do know is that we have a hybrid system and the political parties can raise money both from the taxpayer. At the last election combined, they got $69 million. And they also do private fundraising, and I'm sure Annika will speak to this. But that's a lot of money sloshing around, and a lot of it gets spent on advertising. I've been having a close look at what's going on in the digital space on Facebook, and well out in front is the ALP. In the last 30 days, they've spent half a million dollars on Facebook ads, which is a lot of advertising when you consider a lot of these ads cost between $50 and $100 each. So when you're spending half a million dollars on ads, that's a lot of ads really trying to segregate the market. And by that, I mean reaching young people, old people, all with different messages. Because you can be very specific, can't you? You can be very targeted. Yep. And we call that micro-targeting. The Liberal Party, uh, in comparison, is 164,000, but we have to add in the LNP in Queensland, which is another 27,000. Still a long way behind. It is. And then after that is, have a guess. Um, Clive Palmer. No, it's Climate 200 Group. So they're on 73,000 in the last 30 days, and then Palmer on 64. Now, Palmer's an interesting one because in 2019, he didn't spend a cent on Facebook. He used a lot of free messaging on Facebook. His go-to was those billboards. Uh, as if you've got kids, you'll know he really likes to reach out in YouTube. I had underage kids that were getting asking me last election, who's Clive Palmer, because he was filling up their YouTube feed. How did you answer? <laughs> 
sorry, just take that as a... That's the after dark episode, John. Um, But it's interesting he's now turning to Facebook uh, to increase that ad spend. And then there's Pauline Hanson who's using viral videos and humour and little cartoons to try and get a free ride. Speaking of which, trying to get a free ride on a few other things as well. But let's come to that in a minute. Uh, So still on mainstream media, when do we find out how much people spend and the aggregate spending, for instance, for television ads and the like? Does that ever get released? No, usually not. Not unless you're friends with, in the old days, Harold Mitchell, who used to do a lot of the ad buying and would give a figure every now and then. But it's also a segmented market and to be able to aggregate those figures, which are commercial in confidence, is very hard to get hold of the data and then to get a complete picture of what's going on. So we can add this to our list of things that we think need reforming. Annika, how does this then play out? I mean, can you buy success in an election in Australia? Well, the very fact that um, a lot of other countries that are very similar to ours, like the UK, like Canada, New Zealand, and even the United States to some extent, have have got laws that uh, restrict donations and expenditure in some way, the very fact that they've got those suggests that you can. So that they've learned that they need those sorts of mechanisms for accountability, and yet we're so immature we haven't even introduced them. Well, it's, it varies by state here, John. At the federal level, yeah, it's incredibly lax. So we have a, a disclosure threshold um, where parties need to disclose donations over $14,000 annually, but this uh, is in contrast to, to different state regimes where the threshold for donations is closer to $1,000. So there's a huge gap there. And those disclosures, we don't find out about it till way after the event. Exactly. After an election, political parties um, have to submit their disclosure returns 15 weeks after the polling date. Now, in some states, for example, New South Wales and Victoria, during election periods, they have to submit those returns 21 days after they receive the donation. In other places, Queensland, um, South Australia, ACT, it's, it's weekly. So, you know, that is a much more effective real-time system. But here we don't know who donates to them until well after the election. And as Andrea mentioned, what they spend is equally, if not more, ambiguous because some data comes out around the total election spend, you know, a good sort of eight months, nine months after the election. But that's by virtue of the political parties and the candidates declaring their electoral expenditure to the Electoral Commission so they can get their public funding. The way in which public funding works here is your parties and your candidates, if they get more than 4% of the primary vote, they're eligible for funding. And straight after the election, the Electoral Commission gives them $10,000 to reimburse them for part of that spend. But the rest of that money, they then need to submit a return saying how much they spent and they're entitled to $2.91 per vote that they receive. So we can add this to our tally of things that need to be reformed. Simon, there's a lot of data on this sort of stuff. And apart from anything else, you're very tech savvy. Uh, You were starting again to design an electoral system with the technology that's available to us in 2022. You'd do it completely differently, wouldn't you? Absolutely. We don't have a lot of data available to us on, on this particular facet of Australian elections. Annika mentioned the United States as a comparison point. Say what you like about the role of money in politics in the United States, and there's a lot of, I think, bad things to say about the role of money in United States politics, but boy, oh boy, we have a lot of close to real-time access to who's giving and who's spending, and indeed, they're part of the game. Those numbers themselves 
or a way of uh, demonstrating potential electoral or campaigning strength and perhaps um, signaling to others that they might want to get on the bus or, or warding off would-be um, competitors um, by demonstrating what a big uh, campaign war chest you've got. Like I said, it, it's there are lots of arguments against the pernicious role of money and where it comes from in American politics, but there is way more visibility over both the incomings and the outgoings. Um, the reporting regime in Australia, the thresholds that are required to be tripped before you've got to disclose anything, and then the other thing we have in Australia, which is also a feature of uh, spending in the US, is this so-called dark money. It's possible to contribute mightily to Australian politics, but at one step removed. For instance, for the Liberal Party, the so-called Greenfields Foundation, I say so-called because we know so little about it, um, but these foundations that sit one step removed and money can be funneled uh, to the parties um, through those sorts of organisations and disclosure about who gives to them and how they disperse that money. It often goes as a lump sum, just one line item over to the Liberal Party, New South Wales Division or Liberal Party Federal Division or something like that. Following the money uh, is very, very hard in Australian politics relative to a regime that we think ordinarily has a very poor story to tell about money and politics, the United States. So, Simon, there's kind of an irony here. I mean, you talk about like the Greenfields or the Fortune 500. Uh, we don't get to know who the members of those are. They right. have anonymity. And yet it's Facebook who often gets um, painted as, uh, you know, a, a force of the not so good that is providing us with real-time information about ad spend. It's been left to Facebook to do that, something analogue media has never done, and the AAC, the Australian Electoral Commission, doesn't do. You need to make a declaration here, Carso. Well, I should say that I do research that has been Facebook-funded on fake news. So just in order for anyone to wonder, it's not that you're in their pocket, but you do have a relationship with them, which we'll just declare so as... Real-time declarations of our own, Yes, real-time. Yeah. Just on the numbers you were quoting, though, Andrea, I was maybe it was my American ears on, but those numbers struck me as staggeringly small, to be honest. $40,000 here, $75,000 there. Like, these are not large sums of money. Although that was the last 30 days. And 30, but it's 30 days. Whole, like 27 million compared to the states. What's the states at now? $350 million? I'm not sure we're comparing apples with apples there. But it does beggar the, the question, which is, I think, really interesting, that the real campaign starts as pre, as the pre-poll and postal voting opens. Powder is kept dry. There's a bit of shadow boxing in the first few weeks, as we've been discussing in our podcasts, and now the rubber hits the road. Now, this week, there's also been a fascinating disclosure, a bit of digging. I read it in The Guardian, but it was also published elsewhere, that Pauline Hanson's candidate in Bob Catterseat in far north Queensland is someone who lives thousands of kilometres away in Pakenham, in outer metropolitan eastern suburban Melbourne, who, according to the report that I read, was told, we just need your name on the ballot paper. You don't have to come up here. You don't have to campaign. You don't have to stand at the booth. You don't have to do anything. We just need your name there. Now, given what you've just told us, Annika, about how parties get paid per vote, is this just vote harvesting for the purposes of cash flow for Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party? I mean, given that the parties need to spend to get reimbursed, it's probably not. But I think the strategy that's at play there, John, is the fact that 
Pauline Hanson's One Nation wants to cover every single seat. So it's in their advantage to get people into House of Representatives electorates where they've got no chance and actually no, you know, <laughs> no candidate uh, that that's that from the local area. So they get the recognition in terms of the um, of the Senate vote. And this also is an unusual behaviour for One Nation. They've done it in, in many previous elections and it's led to instances where, you know, it's become detrimental to them. It's been picked up by the media. They've had other instances where the candidate has decided that they actually want to say something, putting the party into disrepute. So Pauline Hanson has a history of rogue candidates and candidates that have very little connection to the party. I'm going to come out and just call it a bloody grift. It's a grift. They ran in, they ran in 59 seats last time. Palmer ran in all 151. And for me, um, the other bit of data that I'm aware of is from the Australian Electoral Survey. The One Nation voter probably wouldn't vote if it weren't for compulsory voting. And that they're angry with the system. You rock up. If that ONP option is on the ballot paper, there's a good chance they might just bloody well take it and tick the whole organisation closer to that 4% threshold. It's a grift. So to help, it's the, the pox on all your houses kind of candidate there. So... We can add this, I don't know how you reform it so that you, you can stand for an election for an electorate where you don't live, but can you stand for one that's even in another state? Is that something that you can open up for reform and for debate? Um, we've already added uh, donation reform, real-time disclosure, um, dual citizenship desperately needs to be looked at again. We could spend an entire podcast chapter just on looking at all the things that are wrong with the way we elect people to run the joint. Well, we? in the UK. You can't run outside your district in the United States. Of where your principal place of residence is, yeah. I was just going to say in the UK, you also have spending um, limitations. You can't spend, I think it's about £30,000 for each electorate. Now, they do have 650 electorates, so you multiply that up, but that's a lot less of a total figure than that 69 million I was quoting before that just came from the taxpayer that went to the political party. Yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned by the quantum. We're talking about control of the state, of the Fed, with their budget in hundreds of millions. The idea that we might spend, goodness me, you know, a hundred million. And if, and if people... You know, if people want to contribute money to politics, that's great. I just want to know who it is and where it's going. That's all. The broader point here is you don't want an arms race with finance and with spending because then it shuts out some candidates. And that's why you end up with very wealthy people who go for president because it is an arms race and those who can fundraise have the capacity to become president. And we last had this debate when we were talking about direct election and the republic model. So let's park that. There's a, another whole conversation to be had and time's running out. We've got to look at early voting. You're listening to Below the Line, picking apart the polls, the party spin and the policies. Subscribe, share and vote below the line. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes. So here we are today. It's Friday, the 6th of May, and pre-poll and early voting and postal voting starts next Monday. There's a whole lot of issues here. First of all, everyone, I think we can all agree there are more and more people who are choosing not to queue up for the democracy sausage and do the, the sizzle at the school. 
and get their vote out of the way for whatever reason. There's a whole range of reasons to do with health, the pandemic, to do with just people who want to switch off and block everything out for the next few weeks. But it has an effect. It has an effect on a whole lot of things. So let's go through, first of all, Simon, just on the figures. What's the trend been on pre-poll and postal voting and what then predictions do you make for this campaign? Yeah, well, here I'm going to draw on the fabulous work of Ben Rao, who um, from tallyroom.com.au, um, great citizen blogger. And, and the great thing about Australia, at least on this facet of Australian elections, is that these data are very easy to get and analyse. At the last election, it's a staggering statistic. Just 54% of votes were what we call ordinary votes. That is, you rock up to a polling place on election day. Um, it's not a provisional vote. It's just an ordinary, yep, I'm on the roll here. Let's go. Um, Pre-polls really surged, um, 07, 10 through 19. And the early stats we're seeing from applications for postals uh, this time suggests that I reckon we could have less than half of the votes cast in this election being the old-fashioned conventional show up on election day and fill out a ballot paper on the, on the Saturday at a, at a polling place. Let's compare that to, say, a decade ago when what sort of vaguely about what percentage 10 years ago would have been voting on polling day in the normal convention? Uh, well, in the 13 election, um, it was up to, it was more than uh, two thirds, 68%. And if I go right back to 2001, that's 85%, John. There's a reason for that that we should be clear about, and that is the rules have changed, or at least there, there's been a re relaxation of the reasons why you can go to yeah. the polls early. Annika probably knows a little more about that. Sure, the reasons have changed and the, the, the paperwork or the rationale for it, but what's clear is people don't necessarily find value anymore in doing it in the traditional sense. But does it have an effect on how people vote is the great unknown? How do we work that out? Can we unpack that, Annika? Well, we know a few things about the people that vote early and why they vote early. The first is it tends to be people who are in, it makes a lot of sense, it's very intuitive, if you're far away from a polling place, so if there's a lower density of polling places in your area, you're more likely to get out there and vote early, which is a convenience thing. The other thing is your your socio-demographic characteristics. So people who are older, who are in nursing homes, mobility issues also tend to, to vote earlier as well. Um, but I think the third thing which um, my colleagues Rodney Smith and Farhan Martinez-Ikoma from Griffith University and Sydney University have found is that you're more likely to vote early in an electorate where it's less competitive. Like you already know, maybe there's a couple of candidates running or there's a clear front runner. So it's not really going to make a difference. People will go out there and vote um, at that point in time. So that's got implications for campaigning and parties' campaigns, both in terms of the intensity of the campaign. So, John, you made the point that, you know, from Monday, everyone is going to assume that's the point at which you can go out and vote. So things, parties can't afford to lose any ground from Monday because an elector who has made up their mind will go out there and, and vote. And also, if, if something sensational happens, you can go and register a protest straight away before there's a correction. That's exactly right. The other factor is, is that then intensifies parties' campaigning efforts on those extremely competitive seats, those very marginal seats, where they will put the resources into that right up to the very, very last day that they can campaign. Okay, so this has an effect on the media strategies too then, Carso, Professor of Press. Well, Annika's right. The campaign gets effectively truncated. 
And one of the things that's interesting here is the coalition or the Liberals have decided to do their launch, I think, in the last week, which is a very old-fashioned idea. If Simon's right and more than 50% go to the polls or cast their vote, uh, they will cast their vote before they even get to hear the final messaging from the coalition. And the other thing we need to think about here is the implications for the smaller parties and for the independents. If you're trying to man these um, polling booths in the... Staff, staff them. Thank you, John. Glad you're correcting. If you're staffing these booths, um, you need to have a lot of staff power in order to do that. And perhaps the independents do. They have a lot of people wearing those teal T-shirts. They yep. might be willing to staff them. They will. Um, but some of the other independents or minor parties may not have the capacity to do that, which speaks to how to vote cards. Do people still follow them and how important is it to hand out that how to vote card? And uh, my understanding from someone inside the machinery is that after the civil war in the New South Wales Liberal Party, they're struggling to get a demoralised membership to go and put in the hours, sometimes very unrewarding hours, to be on hand at pre-poll voting. So let's also have a look at what it means on the night, on the 21st, because if more than 50%, as Simon predicts, are going to be in the bag, so to speak, then on the night, the theatrical counting on the night is counting less than half the votes. And if also, as both Simon and Annika have explained, some of the pre-poll and postal voting aligns differently to what's counted on the night, it's it's even harder to count, to reconcile the votes you're counting on the table on the night that are popping up on our screens with what's sitting in the bag waiting to be counted afterwards. How do we factor this in, Simon? Yeah, it makes Anthony's job a little trickier. Well, it's all about Anthony, of course it is. It's all about Anthony, um, but here's the thing. With affection, I might say, and respect. Anthony Green, AO, as you were, honorary professor at the University of Sydney. The pre-polls do get opened on the night, typically. The problem, though, is that the booth counts are just less relevant. Anthony's got these fabulous predictive models tracking the history of a particular booth. And as its numbers come in, you get a sense of the swing and that electorate and hence across the whole country. The, the point being... This year's booth numbers will be less relevant because more of that booth's population, if you will, has found another way to vote. So you're sort of waiting for this big dollop. Typically what happens is that the pre-polls are being counted at the central office for a given electorate, and they go into the count in a big, massive dump some point on the night, at which point Anthony's algorithms all go snap and are probably able to call the electorate it's going to be a night of you know waiting for the pre-polls to get in and the other thing is the postals simply don't the postals just sit there until monday of the following week and and this and can arrive um for some time afterwards as well and so you have this slow dribble and if we're in some of these races where these preference cascades are pushing independence up or whatnot getting a clear read on that and particularly the way that preference flows and even primaries um, are different across the different modes of voting. Look, I suspect we'll have a clear read on who's won the election on election night, but there's very easily a scenario in which we don't. So I don't know if you can do a podcast pun because it's an oral pun, not a written one, but we'll be waiting and waiting. We'll oh. be waiting in terms of weighing <laughs> and we'll be waiting. I, I, I got it, John. Got it. No, I think, and I think the, the below the line audience is with you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm so pleased that worked. Thank you ever so much. Now, I'm away next week, but we've only got a little bit of time left and a countdown to the big day. But I should also foreshadow for people who have decided that this podcast is somehow vaguely useful to them. We will also do a post-mortem and we'll do a big show after the result as well. But that's all there's time for this time. Yet again, big thanks to our guests, professors of parties, polls and press, Annika Geyer and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, Dr Andrea Carson at the Trobe University. I'm John Fainer, Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, whatever that might be, at the University of Melbourne. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts, also presented by The Conversation Australia. To listen and subscribe, search for Politics with Michelle Grattan on The Conversation Australia website or your favourite podcast app. And our thanks to producers Courtney Carthy, Benjamin Clark. Look forward to speaking to you again later in the week. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again, the Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.